0: So let's open our Bibles to Mark chapter 11. Uh, We go right through the Bible here, uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And so we've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark. We hit a very uh, important uh, transition here uh, with Jesus entering the city of Jerusalem. This is about five days prior to his crucifixion. It's, It's known as Palm Sunday. It's also known as the Triumphal Entry. So we're going to go through the whole chapter. I'm just going to read a few verses here. We'll have a word of prayer, and then we'll work our way through the chapter. So Mark chapter 11, verse 1. Now when they came near Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent out two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, "'Why are you doing this?' say, "'The Lord has need of it,' and immediately he will send it there.' So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. And some of those who stood there said to them, "'What are you doing loosing the colt?' So they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded, and they let them go. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their garments on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road.' And then then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's uh, pause and have a word of prayer together. Thank you, Lord. Jesus, thank you so much for, for coming Thank you for entering our world, Lord, that we didn't have to uh, scale some amazing height or go down to the deepest depths, Lord, to find you. But you stepped into our world, Lord, and you're still here in our world, Lord, in the the person, in the presence of the Holy Spirit, God. And so thank you, Lord, for what this passage means to us. May we look back uh, with devotional eyes, God, and, and loving hearts and understanding minds as we consider this. So thank you, Lord. We commit it to you now in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Amen. I have some slides I want to show you guys, if the slides are ready. Um, it's just good to have a... I should have had my laser pointer, but um, next time. <laughs> um, wanted you to get a visual on what this scene was like. Now, this was an artist's rendition uh, of the city of Jerusalem in the time of Solomon. So this is many centuries before uh, to your right, you see kind of a snaking path, and that 's the Kidron valley, so up at the top, where you see the smoke arising, that would have been uh, the temple of the jews that 's where they would make their sacrifices to the Lord. The temple excuse me, the smoke is actually blowing to the east, so um, the sun would rise upon the temple there they said it was built a, a facade of white marble overlaid with gold. they said when the sun would hit it, it would just be a, a amazingly brilliant and so um, Jerusalem there, we're looking at the south end of the city, the north part, the temple area, Kidron Valley, the Mount of Olives and the Garden of Gethsemane would be off to the right on the other side of this kind of snaking pathway on the right side, Mount of Olives, and then Bethany and Bethphagee would be a- another ridge over. And so Jesus is starting out a couple of ridges away from Jerusalem when this... When this uh, Colt is found. Let's go to the next slide, if you would, please. So here's just kind of a drawing. Um, Garden of Gethsemane there, you see the Kidron Valley, the little stream area, the Temple Mount area, Jerusalem now, this is kind of a, a larger scale Jerusalem, probably during the time of Jesus, the Temple Mount area. So it's built on a mountain, but they would build retaining, they built retaining walls and just and filled it in, so the Temple Mount is an elevated, raised, elevated uh, area there. So, Garden of Gethsemane, approximately, there's, there, interestingly enough, there's an olive grove there that you can visit today, and the trunks on these trees are, you know, this big around, they're massive, and some of us have been blessed to be able to go there, and so, um, probably not the trees, but they may be sprouts of the sprouts, you know, how the trees kind of keep regenerating themselves. Um, mount of Olives, you see Bethphage and Bethany, this this area here, where the where the red X is, probably the area where Jesus acquired this colt, uh, this this young animal that he would ride into the city on, and then he would descend from the Mount of Olives, go down, and as he and, and when we were there, it's amazing as you're going down the Mount of Olives, you look across the Kidron Valley and you see the raised area of the Temple Mount. Go ahead and to the next one. This is uh, sorry for the pixelation there. It's that's pretty bad. Um, this is an artist's rendition, once again, of the temple area. You see down here on the left side and, and on, the, on, the, on the right side, and it's at the diag- diagonal like this. But this would be considered the court of the Gentiles. And, and non, uh, non-Jewish people were allowed to come onto the temple mount. They were called God, God-fearers. And they they feared the God of the Jews, and yet they weren't Jews. And so that's as far as they could go. They could come into the temple court area, the court of the Gentiles. Inside there was where the Jewish people could go uh, even closer. And I'm really, I apologize, I didn't realize how pixelated that was going to be. But this area here, this outside, this gold area is here. This is where there was money changing going on. And there were animals there, and I'll kind of get into that. But this, this area had been turned into like a swap meet. And it had also turned in, been turned into an area where people, if they wanted to get from one side of Jerusalem to the other, they would just cut through the temple courts. It, it's a poor example, but, but it, it works a little bit. Imagine somebody wanting to get from this side of the property to that street over there. And so instead of walking around while we're having church, they just cut through the church and just use it as a shortcut. And that's what was going on in the time of Jesus. Let's go to the next one and see if it's any better. Oh, a little better. Where am I? Southern steps here, uh, this kind of uh, descending area. Those steps still exist. Uh, some of us have sat on the southern steps. So this is looking from the southwest corner. Uh, across there would be the Mount of Olives, uh, Kidron Valley behind uh, you can see the smoke rising once again, artist's rendition. So the Jewish people would come and, uh, and worship the Lord there. Let's go to the next one. Uh, getting a little bit better here, the, the, the uh, pixelation. So I obviously borrowed this from somebody. You can see the watermark on it. Um, once again, artist's rendition of what it probably looked like. Um, once again... The southern, the the part like this on the south, part like this on the north, the court of the Gentiles. This this small recta- smaller rectangular fortress. This was the Antonia Fortress. Um, that's where the Romans built a fort, so they could look over the wall and keep an eye on the Jews. That's where Paul was dragged up into when he, he, he brought some people into the temple area and the Apostle Paul, they thought he was bringing Gentiles in too close and so a, a riot started. They wanted to kill him. A Roman soldier came and dragged him over into the Antonia Fortress and there he was questioned. So let's keep going. Um, just wanted you to get as many pictures as, as possible here. Um, Garden of Gethsemane, once again to the right, the Mount of Olives, Bethphagee, the temple area, Antonia Fortress. You can see um, the darker dotted line was the, the, the perimeter of the city, pr- probably during the time of Jesus. Um, interesting to the to the left there, you see Golgotha, the traditional location. That's traditionally where Jesus would have been crucified. Um, so um, the wall, I mean, the city kept expanding. They kind of kept enlarging the city. So. Don't know if we have another slide or not. Um, Go ahead and and turn that if you would. That was it. Okay. So I just wanted you to get kind of a visual on what's happening here. Jesus here um, has acquired this cult, he's ridden down the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley, uh, gone into the city, and has been welcomed. Uh, let's look at your notes here. Jesus made great preparations for his entrance. He was very deliberate about how he entered into the city. He had been in Jerusalem three months earlier, and as a Jewish man, he would go to all the feasts. And so, uh, the Gospel of Mark, if you only read the Gospel of Mark, it appears that he hasn't been there before, when in fact he has. We know that from the other Gospels. It seems that Jesus was very deliberate in presenting himself in a way that the Old Testament predicted. Um look at your notes there in Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 and this is Old Testament and this is this is stuff that the Jewish people would have known Zechariah prophesied hundreds of years before this day Rejoice greatly O daughter of Zion shout O daughter of Jerusalem behold your king is coming to you he is just and having salvation lowly and riding on a donkey a colt the foal of a donkey And so it seems as though Jesus was very deliberate about not coming in on a stallion in a big procession or something like that. But in order to fulfill prophecy, he came in this way. Why was it important for for him to fulfill prophecy? Because he would be more identifiable. There was a lot of speculation. There was a lot of debate about who Jesus was. But if the Messiah, and the word Messiah means the anointed one, the the sent one from God, if he's coming, then he needs to be identifiable. And so Jesus makes himself very identifiable so that the people know who he is. Those who were Bible readers, and I hope that we're all here Bible readers, they were able to connect the dots if they had the spiritual insight, if they have the mindfulness and the, the softness of heart to connect the dots to say, hey, wait a minute, Zechariah said our anointed one would come on come into the city riding this little animal. Also, we don't really have time to go into it, but in Daniel chapter 9, there's a very interesting prophecy. Long story short, I was going to get into it, but it just, it takes a long time to explain. Uh, you can look it up, you can Google it, look up Daniel chapter 9, the prophecy, and you'll get all kinds of information. It's amazing what's out there now. Um, <clears throat> but it's believed by many, and I'm in this camp, that Daniel prophesied uh, 400 and. 83 years to the day, or predicted the day, that Jesus would ride into the city of Jerusalem. And so that's been extrapolated out by a lot of people. There's strong evidence that Jesus knew that this was the day ordained by God for him to enter Jerusalem as the Messiah. Look at your notes. In a parallel passage, and it's always good to compare the passages, In Luke chapter 19, it says, Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. So Jesus is coming in. There's a lot of applause, which is wonderful. But on the other hand, he's weeping because he knows that by the end of the week, he's going to be rejected. He saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day. And Jesus seems to be talking about a specific day. If he said, If you had known the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. What's my point? My point is this. I think Jesus was very deliberate and very particular about how he entered the city of Jerusalem on this day so that he could be identified as Messiah. Not just another prophet, not just a moral teacher, not just a miracle worker, but the sent one from God, the one that they were looking for to come and rescue them. Now, they were under the yoke of Roman domination and all of that, and so they wanted a a political savior. Gee, it's not too different today, is it? We don't. I love this song by the by the Police. There is no political solution. Anybody know the song? Okay, all the old timers are in here. We should vote and all of that. If not, go look it up and buy me a hamburger and I'll show you the link. Okay. You know, should we vote? Absolutely. Should we have convictions? Absolutely. Jesus is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So he comes in as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. They wanted a political savior. He says, basically, I'm so much more than that. But they were looking for a short-term solution. And Jesus came to bring eternal life. But he wanted to make him... I like that little thing. Did you like the little thing? I was like, kind of got it in my mind now. Dun, 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 dun. So anyway. Caffeine's kicking in right now. I'm really feeling good. Okay, Jesus came to bring them so much more. They were looking short-term. But he was looking to bring them eternal life. And he wanted to be identifiable to them. So he's very particular about how he comes in. He comes in in a way that they can recognize and that they should have known. Look at the public response once again. Verse 7, They brought the colt of Jesus, threw their garments on it, and he sat on it. So the disciples here offer their clothes for him to sit on. Now, you know, normally speaking, you, you put your garment all over an animal like that, when you get it back, it's going to be fragrant, isn't it? But this was a very special, a very amazing moment. Verse 8, And many spread garments on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Another gospel writer tells us they were palm branches. I was raised in the Catholic Church. We we had Palm Sunday when I was a kid. Uh, They would give us little crosses made out of a palm leaf, that kind of thing. Some of you may have gone through that. So that's why it's also called Palm Sunday. This was like a red carpet treatment. Welcome, welcome you know, sp- special one, welcome anointed one, welcome Messiah. How much did they fully understand? There's probably all, all degrees of understanding in the crowd, but the important thing is to know how Jesus intended them to understand. And so they're welcoming him. welcoming him. Verse 9 and 10, Those who went out before and those who followed cried out saying, Hosanna, which is a Hebrew for save now. Save us. They're saying this to Jesus, save now. Undoubtedly, they're saying, drive out Caesar. Drive out Rome. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And so they're quoting from Psalm 118, a very popular psalm, which looks forward to the Messiah. So they're ascribing to Jesus now messianic overtones. You're the anointed one. You're the one that God has sent to save us. So this is five days before his crucifixion. And Jesus is allowing all of this to happen. And we know as we've been going through the Gospel of Mark and as we've studied other Gospels here, a lot of the time when there was confrontation, Jesus would just kind of disappear. He wasn't about to get into it. He didn't back down from people, but if he could avoid the confrontation, he often did. But today there's no avoiding the confrontation. He's very, very deliberate and showing up to the place where he had been telling his disciples for six months, when I go there, they're going to kill me. The religious leaders are going to conspire against me, and they're going to get the Romans, and they're going to kill me. And I'm telling you ahead of time, so that you'll know after I've risen from the dead that I am he. Jesus was very, very deliberate, guys, about what he's doing here. And he's not backing down now. We read from the Gospel of John, verse 11. Look at your notes. Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. This is pre-Palm Sunday, before the triumphal entry. Jesus was, would avoid the confrontation until it was time for the confrontation. There's probably a lesson there for us too, isn't there? And the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem... Whenever you go to Jerusalem, you would ascend, you would gain elevation because it's built on a mountain. They went up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they saw Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. Jesus was the topic of conversation. They said, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast? They understood that there was antagonism against him from the religious rulers in Jerusalem. Now, both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it, that they might seize him. So, guys, up to now, this is my point. Up to now, you know, it wasn't time to to have the the showdown, it wasn't time for this confrontation, to let this confrontation go to its, its full extent. But now's the time. If we understand Daniel's pred- prediction correctly, now is the day, the identifiable day, when Jesus said, I have to be there. I have an appointment. And I have to show up this way so they'll know who I am. And Jesus was very deliberate about entering this place of worship and this place that had gone horribly wrong spiritually. He was very, very deliberate to show up in a way that they, that they could identify him. He wanted to be known. Still wants to be known, doesn't he? Amen. Still wants to be known. May I make a suggestion? Kind of a very short rabbit trail. When we're sharing Jesus with the world, we need to do it accurately, don't we? We need to do it accurately. You know, my wife. My wife is five uh, ten, um, dark hair with gray, uh, blue eyes, uh, sweetest disposition, uh, great cook. How could you tell? You know, if I if I just if I describe her in other terms, you know, when you meet her, you'd go, "Well, uh, this isn't who you described." I would never have known that this was your wife by how you described her. We we need to be accurate when describing people. We need to be biblically literate when we're describing Jesus, don't we? It's a disservice and a dishonor to, to, to introduce him to our family and friends in ways that are not biblical. So, l- l- just in a word of encouragement, Jesus was very deliberate about it. This is who I am. This is how you'll know who I am. So, and I know you guys are students of the Bible here. Here we are studying the Bible together. Let's make sure that we're, dis- we're bringing the biblical Jesus to the world because there's a lot of false Jesuses out there. As the Bible said there would be 2,000 years ago. False messiahs and all of that. So... Just a word of encouragement to do that. So, what do we have so far? Jesus is very deliberate to make preparations, to to present himself in a clear way. The people respond to him with some degree of of appreciation and expectation. Uh, They probably wanted less than he wanted to give them, which is often the case with people still. They want less than God wants to give them. So... Now we see Jesus' actions as the Messiah. Let's look at verse 11 and then we're going to skip down to verse 15. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all the things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So he gets there, has a quick look around, and just goes out of town and spends the night outside of town. It's been suggested because it was so dangerous to stay there. He, he, He couldn't give his life before the right day. It had to be the right day on the Passover. Verse 15, skipping over an event that we're going to get to in just a moment. So they came to Jerusalem the next day, and Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple, common household goods. You can't use the church for a shortcut. Then he taught, verse 17, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. For they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his teaching, and when evening had come, he went out of the city. Once again, spending the night outside of the city. The Temple Mount was where the people worshipped God, the Jewish nation worshipped God. There was a lot of Jews that were living outside of Jerusalem, so they would make this pilgrimage to Jerusalem on the major feast days. The people were to offer animal sacrifices to God as well as financial offerings to God, uh, wine and oil and other things. They would make offerings to the Lord. The animals had to be inspected by the temple priests. The animals needed to be without defect or without spot or blemish. And the people were making an offering to the Lord. It couldn't be... Have you guys ever seen that little... There's a little funny thing out there on the internet, you know? Lost dog. Have you guys have you seen that? Lost dog, three legs, blind in one eye, lost all his teeth, goes by the name of Lucky. Have you guys, have you guys seen that? It's funny, you know? You couldn't bring lucky as an offering to the Lord. Because lucky's not worth much. For all the dog lovers, I'm a dog guy, so. You couldn't bring your leftovers to the Lord. You were to bring your best to the Lord. It should still be that way today. We don't, we don't give to God if we have a little leftover. May I encourage you as Christians, not for Cornerstone, wherever you may go to church or wherever God may lead you, you bring the first fruits to the Lord. That's the biblical way to give. May I encourage you in that? And God will meet your needs in Christ Jesus. You don't bring the leftovers. So they were to bring animals to the Lord that were not you know, blind or defect or sick. I mean, to offer a dying animal to the Lord is, is no offering at all. It costs you nothing. But the priests were there to inspect the animals to make sure. Now, if, an offer, now if a pilgrim, if a, if a worshiper came from a long distance away, He couldn't bring an animal, so he would have to buy an animal when he got to Jerusalem. So look at your notes here. They needed to be the best that the worshiper could offer without spot or blemish. These animals prefigured the offering that Jesus would make of his own body perfect and sinless. They were a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ, who would offer his sinless self to the Lord. John the Baptist, look at your notes, guys. John the Baptist said, regarding Jesus... The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So, this whole idea of offering these animals, guys, please connect the dots and think about it. Innocent, an innocent life was given for the sin of another person. But the book of Hebrews says the blood of all those bulls and goats, all those tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of animals that were offered up to the Lord by His command were never enough to absolutely get rid of the sins of people. They just kind of covered over them till the Lamb of God would come. As those animals had to be sinned uh, without spot or blemish, so the sinless one came and gave his life for the sins of the world, Jesus Christ. Those animals were prefiguring Jesus. So they had to be without spot or blemish. Now, if you came from a long distance, you had to buy an animal there. So what they were doing was they were overcharging the people. They were overcharging the people to have a legitimate, uh, receivable sacrifice. A couple other things. Look at your notes. Number five down there. Financial offerings could only be given in the temple currency, and so the exchange rates were very high. They were making money off of the people's faith. Jesus was interrupting their unethical practice during this time that they were making the most money. This was the high season. In Napa, we would call it the tourist season. No big deal if the water gets shut off in, in December in Napa, Right? Napa Valley. It is for we who live here. But for visitors, I mean, you know what I mean? You, you shut off the water in June when all the hotels want to be full, somebody's going to be outraged about that. This is what's happening. Jesus is coming in at, peak, at the peak season when they're ripping people off and getting the most money and they are infuriated with him because they had turned their religion into a money-making scheme. Some things never change, do they? still happening today. And just as much as Jesus hated it then, he hates it now. Now all of this business took place in the court of the Gentiles, where I showed you guys. This was their church. This was where they worshipped God. It had become a shortcut for those traveling east-west in the city. The Gentiles' place of worship had turned into a convenient thoroughfare. The Jewish people didn't like the Gentiles anyway. So why should they care if they ruined their church? God cared about every single person that came to worship Him. He still cares about every single person that comes to worship Him. And to do anything to hinder somebody who's coming to worship God, you better watch out. Because Jesus still cares about it. We don't want to put impediments in front of people. We don't want to make life more convenient for ourselves and harder for someone else in their worship of the Lord. Jesus hated the whole thing. He disrupted it. He rebuked the people involved. Look at verse 17. And he taught. then he taught. Notice, Jesus is always teaching, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of thieves. He didn't just make that up. He's quoting from the Old Testament. Once again, he's speaking to them in their language. He's speaking to them quotations that they should have known, that they should have seen, oh my gosh, we're doing that very thing that Isaiah warned us against 750 years ago. We're, we're making that mistake that God warned us about centuries ago. He quotes from Isaiah 56 and from Jeremiah 7. He's warning them in a way they can understand. Verse 18, the scribes and the chief priests heard it. They sought how they might destroy him for they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching. I love this word, astonished. To strike out of one's senses. Okay, you guys gotta look up here. When Jesus taught, they went like this. Can you believe what he said? I mean, they were blown away. They were absolutely blown away. Jesus had such insight, he had such authority, there was there was such power in his word, not in his bullying. There were religious leaders then, there are religious leaders now that are entertaining, they're funny, they're clever, they're good speakers, but there's no power in the message. It's just the message of man. And Jesus was not giving the message of man. He was giving the message of God. And they were astonished. They hadn't heard anything like it. Jesus had such power to to attract those who were really truth seekers. And it put the fear of Jesus in the hearts of the religious leaders. So this is what's going on. Jesus, what do we have so far? I'm glad you asked. He presents himself as the Messiah and he disapproves of what's going on in the nation of Israel. And he tells them. And he shows them by their own word how where they're going wrong. Now we have this in- interesting incident with the fig tree. Verses 12 to 14. Now the next day, when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And the disciples heard it. So, Jesus looks for fruit where fruit should have been, but it wasn't there. Now, it's an interesting thing. You have to study a little bit. Verse 13, And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Then why, why, Jesus, were you expecting to see fruit? From what I understand, I read on Ray Steadman's uh, website. I uh, used to live in Palo Alto. He didn't understand this, so what he did, he was a pastor in Palo Alto. He went and bought a fig tree. So I'm going to study this fig tree business. So it takes four or five years for fig trees, apparently, to, to mature where they can bring forth figs. Before the actual real fig season, there's what Ray Stedman would call the pre-fig. Kind of a funny little saying. They're, they're, they're little miniature fruit pieces of fruit they're not as good as the real fig, but they are edible and they do have nutrition in them. So, that, those happen. By the time the leaves are there, the prefigs should already be there. It's not the real fig season yet, it's just the pre-fig season. I've got to come up with a joke on that. That just sounds funny to me, don't you? You're just such a prefig. Okay, I don't, I don't know. It's, you're not the real thing yet. You're just a prefig. You're not really a fig. It's just funny. I'm going to come up with a joke. So, Jesus is looking for those prefigs. They should have been there. There should have been some fruitfulness there. Why? Because it already had leaves. If it has leaves by this time, there should be some kind of fruit on the tree. That's why he was looking for it because it should have been there and it wasn't there. And so he simply says, you know what? May no one ever eat from you again. He wasn't announcing, he wasn't putting fruitlessness, he wasn't putting barrenness on the tree. He was announcing barrenness. Does that make sense? He didn't make the tree fruitless. The tree was already fruitless and he just confirmed it. There seems to be a great parallel here, a big parallel here between that tree and the nation of Israel. Look at your notes, Luke chapter 13. And he spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. He's talking about the nation of Israel. And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of the vineyard, Look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and found none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it, and if it bears fruit, well. But if not, after that you can cut it down. The time had come where Jesus is coming to the fig tree, if you will, of Israel and saying, you know what? Not only are you fruitless, but you're putting forth poison. And now, and now the judgment of God was coming against the people. By the way, in case anybody's concerned, and by, this, by the way, this is the only destructive miracle uh, that we find in the ministry of Jesus or even in the New Testament. In case somebody has a problem with Jesus bringing death to a fig tree, look what G. Campbell Morgan says. I, I, I'm thankful for this insight. There is no more warrant for criticizing our Lord for destroying a tree for the purpose of teaching than there is for objecting to a Christmas tree for our children or the plucking of petals from a flower in a lesson on botany. Jesus was the Lord of that fig tree. So he had the right to just say, you know what? You're done. You're not not doing what you should do, so you're done. Get a sip of water here. We pick up the story in verse 20. By the way, as you see, if you have any questions, fire them in. We're almost to the end here. At which some of you silently said, praise the Lord. (laughs) Verse 20. Now in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And and that that was a quick death, wasn't it? And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed... Has withered away. Just a simple observation that Peter had. And Jesus turns it into a lesson on prayer, which is just the strangest thing to me, to my less than perfectly sanctified brain. But Jesus turns it into a lesson on faith and prayer. Verse 26. Excuse me, verse 22. So Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God. For assuredly, I say, and by the way, between verse 21 and 22, there seems to be a disconnect. But there isn't because Jesus wasn't just, he wasn't schizophrenic or, or have ADD. Jesus isn't, uh, <laughs> verse 21, Peter says, look, the, the tree you curse has withered. And Jesus said, squirrel, I, I mean, he's not doing that. He's not doing that, right? He didn't. He wasn't ADD or anything like that. Or he, you know, he he was. He, I think there's such a profound connection here that we could probably all spend a lot more time thinking about this. But I'll do my best to share some thoughts. Jesus said, "You know what, Peter? Have faith in God." Yeah, I curse the tree. Have faith in God. There's a, there's a connection there. There's a correlation there. For assuredly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be removed and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things, he says, will come to pass, he will have whatever he says. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you will have them. This event is linked to verse 14, where Jesus said, Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And then Jesus said, In the same way, you need to have faith in God. It's interesting to me, guys. It's really interesting. And I feel like I'm stepping out on a little bit of thin ice here. But it's interesting to me that Jesus is equating that statement on the tree with having faith in God and prayer and saying, basically, if you have, this is kind of weird for me to say, if you have that kind of faith, you can change the course of the world around you. That's what happened, isn't it? I'm still working on processing all of this with my mind and my heart and my faith and all of that. But he basically said, if you have this kind of faith, you can change some of the things in your world. I'm just thinking, wow, I've got to think on that one for a while. But isn't that what he's saying? Would you agree? Anybody? All three of you. Five, six, we're up to seven. That's, that's quite a statement, isn't it, by Jesus? If you have faith, you can change things in the world around you. God's intention for prayer is never, the, is never for us, it's for Him. It's for His, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not for us, it's not for our enrichment, it's not for our carnal pleasures or anything like that. It's always for His kingdom. And I would even dare say that this move by Jesus was absolutely led by the Spirit of God for the kingdom of God, to illustrate truth, to illustrate faith. Look at your notes. Verse 22, Kenneth Weiss says regarding the word faith, he says faith is regarded as the normal attitude of the heart, not a sudden emotion or an isolated act. What does that mean? Something comes up in your life and suddenly you say, well, I'll just claim that verse. You know, the rest of your life has no faith. The rest of your life is not close to Jesus. The rest of your life... It's compromised or there's you know, ongoing sin or anything like that. And some people think that just in the moment, in the, in the spur of the moment, and in an emotional peak, they can just kind of muster up some kind of faith and just say some words and believe their claim claiming a promise. And that's not what Jesus is saying. Because he goes on to talk about, you need to have this kind of life. If you're going to pray those kinds of prayers, you need to have this kind of life. The only way that those kind of prayers come to pass is when you have this kind of life. What kind of life is he talking about? He says in verse 23, Be removed, you can say be removed and cast into the sea. It's a Hebrew idiom for conquering difficult things. You don't doubt in your heart, believe in those things he says will come to pass. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask, uh, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. Verse 25 and 26. And whenever you stand praying, still talking about prayer, isn't he? If you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. Guys, verse 26, read it. If you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. You cannot have a bitter heart. You cannot have an unforgiving heart. You cannot have a hateful heart. I'm not saying we don't struggle with emotions. I struggle with emotions. As of this moment in my life, I'm still praying for people that I struggle with. But I'm praying. I'm not going to wait till my emotions catch up before I start praying. I need to pray so that my emotions will change. I need to be extending forgiveness to those that I feel have wronged me. Because if I don't, there's a barrier between me and God, and I can't say, oh, mountain, Mount, uh, Atlas Peak, be removed. <laughs> Who do I think I am? If I'm not willing to forgive my fellow man, do you think I can just muster up some prayer and something's going to happen? It's not going to happen. How important is forgiveness, guys? It's incredibly important. Forgiveness isn't saying... Uh, you know, please please don't ever say things like this. I don't know if I can ever forgive them. Yeah, you can. Whatever the offense is against you, your offenses against God are infinitely greater. And God has forgiven you. Amen? Yes or no? He's forgiven you. Forgiveness is a choice. Don't wait for your emotions to catch up. If you're having trouble with your emotions, and I understand that, if you're having trouble with your emotions, you pray anyway you pick on a time and a place. Every time you drink a cup of coffee, before you take that gulp, you pray for uh, Joe Meanyhead, who offended you and and called your dog Lucky. And (laughs) you pray. Before you take that first cup in the morning, you pray for that person, and you go at it, and you go at it, and you go at it. Lord, I pray that... Not, not God, that you'd bless them with a great job. Lord, I pray that your blessings and that your grace and that your mercy and a great revelation of you would come upon Joe Meanyhead... Because he's been so mean to me and my family, I pray that you would bless them the way that you've blessed me. And that, that's the attitude of forgiveness. And that changes your heart. And then you can say things like, verse 23, be removed and cast into the sea. And Jesus is teaching on prayer about four days before they're going to kill him. Because he's going to die so he can forgive them too. Can you see it all linking together? You connecting the dots with me? It's amazing. It's an amazing week. Find a... If I know that somebody's going to kill me on Friday, I just want to hang out with my friends and have a barbecue. (laughs) I don't want to teach anybody about forgiving your enemies. Jesus is way lofty, isn't he? He's amazing. He's a wonderful Savior. Look at your notes. Verse 25, prayer must be preceded by forgiveness. Unforgiveness is a sin that comes between us and God. We cannot expect our prayers to be answered if we do not choose to forgive. We must forgive. Forgiveness is a choice. It, it doesn't mean that you're going to be best friends or anything else. It just simply means, I'm not going to hold that against you anymore. I'm not going to use it against you. I'm not going to let it, uh, I'm not going to use it as a weapon against you. And I have to say this again before we get on to our last point. Note, Jesus' prayer changed a wrong situation. It got rid of a tree that didn't have the right to exist anymore. I'm not saying you pray people out of existence, okay? (laughs) So don't don't pin that on me. But our prayers can too if we are forgiving others, not doubting and believing God. Our prayers can change situations. and I'm almost fearful to say that because it's so grand and I feel like I know so little of it. But that's where it is, isn't it? That's where it is. May the Lord lift us up to that. Verse 27, let's finish this thing. Then they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. It's time. The showdown is increasing. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority to do these things? So, good question. But Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you one question, then then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. Where is he? Starts with a T, ends with an emple mount. He's on the temple mount. Who's on the temple mount? Thousands and thousands of people. He's doing this in a crowd in front of listening ears. People are watching. This is a showdown of truth. He's not letting them off the hook. He loves them, but he's not letting them off the hook for the sake of, of convenience or not having a confrontation. Truth is vital right now. So, verse 32, verse 31. They reasoned among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say then why did you not believe him? If we say from men, they feared the people for all for all the people counted John to have been a prophet indeed. So they answered and said to Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus is heading towards the cross. It's just a few days away. He doesn't pull back because of the opposition of the religious rulers. He's not avoiding their question. and notice this. He's not avoiding their question. And I hadn't seen this until yesterday, and I praise God for great commentaries and great godly men that have gone before us. He's not avoiding their question, but he's getting to the heart of it. Who gave you that authority? He goes, well, let me ask you a question. What do you think about John? Because John had already told him who Jesus was. What did, Jesus, what did John the Baptist say about Jesus? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The anointed one. He's the anointed one. He's the sent one from God. He's the sacrifice for the sins of all of humanity. That's who, that's who John said his cousin Jesus was. That's who he is. So Jesus simply said, and, and they had gone out to question John at the Jordan River. And, and John spanked them. John rebuked them. He scolded them for their hypocrisy. He didn't hold back either. And so they come to Jesus, who do you think you are? And Jesus says, I don't know. You remember what my cousin said? What do you think of my cousin? Well, they can't tell the truth because inwardly they hate him. But if they say that, all the people around them are going to turn against them. So they have to save their jobs. But if they say, oh no, he was was from God, then that means we have to bow to you and we don't want to bow to you so we're just going to play dumb because we want to save our necks. And in essence, they're putting their own heads in the noose. So it's just amazing to me, the wisdom of Jesus, he doesn't pull back, he doesn't avoid their question, but he gets to the heart of it, and he makes them answer. And the Bible says, guys, that every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And, and I, I praise the Lord for so many of you as I look out at these beautiful faces here today. So many of you have praised, have bent, bent the knee and bowed the heart and proclaimed that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen, Amen guys? Amen. And the Lord has been so good to us. And if there's anybody here that you've never said that, it is in this lifetime that we have the opportunity to bow our knees and surrender our lives to Jesus. They came asking. And he said, well, what do you think? Well, I don't know. Self preservation, the fear of man, peer pressure, job stability, all of these things, and that's what what they're having to wrestle with, so they just play dumb, but there was no escaping it. There was no escaping it. I pray that every one of us here would say yes to Jesus, that we wouldn't let peer pressure, job security, anything keep us from, from saying yes to Jesus. He came in a way that was identifiable. He came and walked among us. John chapter 1 says, He pitched His tent with us and He dwelt among us. God came to earth. He made Himself identifiable. He comes and He confronts us with the hypocrisy of our lives, the untruthfulness of our lives, because He loves us. And He understands our frailty, but He also understands our rebellion. And then He'll ask us, So what do you think of me? And we have to come up with an answer. And we will come up with an answer. And the answer is, you're, you're the King of kings and Lord of lords. And that's what we should say in this life. Or, or if we don't, and we, we exit this life without saying that, we will have to bow before him before we're set, sent away from him. Jesus, Jesus. I just, this is a little pet peeve of mine. Save the word awesome for Jesus. He's awesome, isn't he? He's awesome. Any, I don't know if there's any questions. How did Judaism at that time, given their heritage and resources, end up with a religion of all leaves and no root? (laughs) Fruit, teasing. We want to know how they got there so we don't get there ourselves. They had the truth of God. Uh, The Apostle Paul said they had zeal, but it was zeal without knowledge. They had the oracles of God. But guys, in just the same way with us, we have more information than they do. It's just simply a matter of, of recognizing the truth of God and either surrendering to it or going our own way. If we go our own way, our hearts become desensitized. Jesus said you can't serve God and mammon. You can't have a a, a duality of, of worship in your life. You will either bow your life to God or you'll bow your life to yourself. And so we have even more information than they do. It's a matter of saying yes to God, yes to God, yes to God. That's how you avoid ending up being fruitless. By the way, may I say this to, to my brothers and sisters, Christians here. How seriously does Jesus take fruitlessness? Just think on that. We don't want to have fruitless lives, do we? We want to have fruitful lives, don't we? John 15, Abide, He's the vine where the branches. Abide in Him and will bear fruit more fruit and much fruit to the glory of the Father. It's an important important concept. Can this tie in to the fig tree teaching? Proverbs 18.21 Death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruit. I don't know. Um, I guess I can't. I guess they're not going to let me answer that. (laughs) <laughs> oh, there it is again I put, throw me back in the deep end of the pool I don't know I don't know I would have to I'm always, I'm always uh, slow to just respond because context is so important and, and I don't want to just you know. and p- part of this Q&A thing that I've, that I've enjoyed doing with you guys is to say sometimes I'll have to think about it I don't know I'll put it on the Facebook page this week. I'll come to a conclusion and put it on the Facebook page. Until then, you, we can all wrestle with it together. Joe, can you come up and lead us in a closing song? Let's pray together, you guys. Thank you, Lord, that you've come in a way that we can understand and you present yourself to us even today in a way that we can understand, Lord. And you, you put on flesh, Lord, and you... Uh, went through all the things and you've suffered in all the ways that people suffer. And we're grateful, Lord, that you understand. You understand our frailties and our weakness, our doubts, our fears, our hopes, our dreams, all those things, Lord. you you felt it all. And so thank you, Lord, that you're not a faraway God. You're close. You're here, Lord. And we pray for every heart here to say yes to you, Lord. And we pray, Father, that we also, God like you, Lord Jesus, would, would not hinder anybody in their faith. We would speak truth, but we wouldn't allow the conveniences of life or greed or selfishness hinder somebody else's faith, Lord, like the money changers did. And I pray that we wouldn't have the fear of man like the, like the rulers did, Lord, throwing up our hands and saying, we don't know. I pray that we would know and that we'd be bold, to make confessions of faith before before you and before people. Father, bless this group, I pray, Lord. Thank you. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.